Before we get started for this week's show, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. A shout out to our latest patrons, Jonathan Howard and our very own Jade Dancingani. Thank you for your continued support. This week, we discuss news from around the emerging world, plus part two of our special with Steve Richardson of the ICC Anti-Corruption Unit. Stick around. Hello and welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me are my two co-hosts first up in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. Tim, how's things? Always happy to be asked first. <laughs> I'm okay. More cricket to watch, which is great. And, you know, in other news, the numbers went up for me this morning, except it was staying on the scale. Thought I was going well, losing weight, but I think that was more to do with me having four of my teeth cut out of my head. <laughs> And so it's gone back up again. So I might have to start leaving the house and moving again. That's frustrating. It's winter. We'll we'll give you a pass. You know, it's, it- it's Brisbane. That <laughs> you know, it, it, people wear jumpers out here, and it's like it's twenty three degrees. It's, it's <laughs> that that's not cold. I think to move from Hong Kong to Brisbane, where people you know start getting out their uh, North Face jackets when it gets under twenty degrees, it's always quite bemusing to me. Um, I I sweat in ice bars, so um, I'm I'm loving it. But um, I'm good, Daniel. How, how are you? How's life? Glad you are your own harshest critic there, Tim. No, I'm not too bad. Uh, the schedule's freed up a little bit. Had some work dried up, which means more time for emerging cricket. We've got a lot of projects to get going on as part of the EC movement. And of course, the third member of the Emerging Cricket Podcast team, he does the bulk of the editing here as well as a bunch of other stuff. Better known on Twitter as Copernicus Cricket. Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm very well, Bez. And uh, yeah, so same thing. We've uh, all had our noses to the grindstone, got an exciting project coming through with Emerging Cricket. We're doing profiles of every single member and non-member of the ICC that we can find. So Lots to get through. Nick, have you ever thought about uh, changing that uh, Twitter profile now that uh, everybody knows who you are? <laughs> well, I think it's um, it's just sort of too late now. No, I've already established the brand and, and it's, it's too late to change. Yeah, well, it's not. <laughs> I think you can still change it. You could, you could say, aka Capernaum's Cricket. The man formerly known as. <laughs> Look, I, I know it's a strange time for me to bring this up, but... Um... Moving on. Uh, <laughs> some... Some emerging cricket content in mainstream consciousness this week with Beyond the Boundary being released on Netflix. Plenty of Thailand attention in that hour-long film about the ICC Women's World Cup. Uh, What were our general thoughts, boys? I'll start with you, Nick. It was good to get some action and, and some thoughts from people wasn't quite really there we're not really the target audience for it it's a very tricky one to discuss and um, i'm sure ben stinger will enjoy our our chat about it this week (laughs) yeah exactly it's a film review about associate cricket so he can't tell us to stop um i think the thing with it as you say we're not really the target audience It, it was more a sort of promoting women's cricket vehicle which it does all right at my main problem was that it doesn't really have much insight it just sort of has a bunch of match highlights and and a couple of mini interviews around the sides of them and you don't really get a lot of that behind the scenes fly on a wall kind of stuff that all the really good sports documentaries have you know when they're following teams around and you see how they're preparing for games and and what's going on behind the scenes and you know stuff like the test or the edge or you know those kinds of docos really go into depth this was just an hour almost just like a highlights reel really 
Yeah, I think that's exactly what we're watching. There was, it was all branded as ICC and Sunset and Vine, who were their production partners. I think this is the one-hour highlights package that they tried to uh, do a little bit more with this time, and especially with a dearth of content out there in and around you know, cable TV and whatnot. To get it on Netflix is great. So on one hand, it's great that it was there. Super to see Thailand as one of the four focused nations. In retrospect, you know, I don't think Bangladesh were even mentioned during the entire piece, no. and Pakistan were probably only on there because you know they. They played Thailand in that last game. But I think it's a good start. You know, a bit like... Um, it r- reminded me a little bit of Cricket Fever. I remember the Mumbai Indians Netflix um, series. That was the first ever cable TV series on, on cricket. And then we saw the test come along, which took it to the next level. You know, that at least the flags in the sand. There's a cricket highlights package from a major event there. Even better that it's about the Women's World Cup. And even better again that Thailand were one of the focus nations. So, look... Yeah, we could probably go by fine-tooth comb and say that what was too much cricket and not enough behind the scenes, as, as you said, Nick. But I'm happy that people are seeing this. And I've got to say, that there's something about Nirmal Chaiwai that gets me every time I see her interviewed. I, I started tearing up listening to her talk. I did that in that other, I think it was a two-minute video during the T20 World Cup as well, and I was talking to her, what it means to her and her family. I don't know. I was bubbling. I hope Mel wasn't looking at me. I was sort of like, you know, I was doing the old guy thing in the movies where you kind of like just yeah, don't touch your face, don't touch your <laughs> face. But I, look, I don't know. I, I would have thought that I, I've seen enough about Thailand cricket and seen them interviewed and seen them play that it still doesn't get me. But uh, like I was a bubbling mess. So yes, so can do a lot better. But look, it's a start and cricket's on Netflix. Well, that's the thing, you know, there was so much gold just in those tiny little snippets of, of the interviews. You'd, you'd think, why not have more of that? And and even, you know, even the, the, the major teams, you know, Alyssa Healy, she's dreaming of being on stage with Katy Perry and with a win, winner's medal and there she is. So like all those all those through lines that they could have... Was Katy Perry there? You wouldn't have known with them not, <laughs> not being allowed to play the music by the end. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I did was... notice that. I, I thought it was a bit strange that they were playing their generic stock music over the top of her concert. We looked at each other as like, what? surely you play the music that is going on here while they're on the stage celebrating it was <laughs> would also cost a bomb to have that though to be fair yeah see no rights expert here when it comes to that but it must have the amount of money they paid to get on stage and to play to the final did not extend to oh by the way when we want to repurpose this content for our own series but um i don't know i would have liked to seen that you know the the the, the icc committee oh yeah well we, we got katie perry but it's an ex- extra million bucks to get her into the netflix de- documentary but um <laughs> <laughs> i think the most important thing is Look, the more people that they show this on Netflix to in that 10 to 18 year old female demographic, the better. And yeah, you know, ultimately down the track, we might see two, three, four part specials where we do go into those team meetings and play interviews. But yeah, overall, I think it's a, it's a great start. Um, and it, in total, it's been a very busy week for women's cricket in general. We saw the return of women's international T20 cricket on our screens via the European Cricket Network. So a shout out to them again. Germany winning the T20 International Series against Austria 5-0. Uh, Germany losing just five wickets across the matches. Uh, Janet Ronalds and Christina Goff both scoring hundreds. Uh, and Aradha Dadabalapur taking four wickets in four balls in one of those matches. Still only one six hit across across the matches, but I think the big point that I sort of took out of this, and, and this was mentioned, I think, by Tom Grunshaw and people doing work at EmergingCricket.com throughout the week, is that this series was very much reflective of where domestic and league cricket is in the respective countries. Um, Austria's women are begging for more matches and more opportunity and ultimately more match practice. There were a few positives there, but you could tell, Nick, that there was a, a definite goal in class there well i mean as as you say you know the numbers pretty much tell the whole story all these 
records tumbling on on the German side and and the Austrians really struggling to compete. I think Rod Lyle uh, mentioned in one of our group chats that you know uh, even a few years ago Austria basically had one female cricketer in total and and now they have a whole team. So that in itself is is progress and the fact that they're getting on the field is uh, is a testament to the game growing there. You know there's there's some interesting stories coming out of the Austrian team. You know they've got some um, Albanian heritage players, uh, some Turkish heritage players and so so the they've got a real ethnic mix uh, which which reflects the country and I think that's important you know we, we talk obviously there's the whole expats debate which we, we don't need to reheat at the moment but the fact that they have locals and, and people reflecting the diversity of the country in this side is really encouraging so I think that was good on the field yeah they struggled Andrea Mazepeda was pretty much the only um, the only one who was able to compete with the Germans she also was the leading player for Austria in um, uh, last year's a European tournament which France won but yes beyond Andrea May they they really were not up to standard but as you say you know they need to get more match practice get more games get more cricket under their belts and you know I think they'll just improve yeah and yet again to see some of the vitriol on Twitter is always disappointing I actually bit I've been trying to be a lot better <laughs> don't feed the trolls Tim mm, we can't talk to be fair well yeah that's <laughs> no like you two we need to have a chat to you two about feeding the trolls now it was someone that put up a clip of a wide bold in the in the first match was um terrible ball full toss it probably could have been a no ball as well and they've just clipped it enough they said oh i can't believe a wide wasn't even called on this and because the score didn't tick over and you don't see a, a signal from the umpire it's like yeah okay but half a second after that clip the score ticks over and, and a boundary's hit. But then a reply to that as well saying, oh, on the ground, but it's temporary. Oh, I'm doing inverted commas here for those who can't see me. <laughs> it's great for us. Great visual. Temporary effect. pitch like a, a village ground. It's like, mate, you're a so-called journalist. What are you getting out of denigrating a country's only permanent cricketing facility? That's a privately owned farm that the owner has uh, well allowed a, a cricket ground to be played on that. This is something we should be celebrating. But it's, it's yet again, you know, without universal T20I status and without Daniel Weston's European cricket network they wouldn't even know that these games are going on and yet they get to watch it and what's their reaction that they wanted to bring it down so it was good to see that we didn't get any um pieces on cricket websites or otherwise calling for these games not to be international so that's a step forward but just great to be able to sit it was quite a good time zone for a lot of the world as well to be able to sit and, and, and watch with it going on like you said both of you, you know that austria got a long way to to go but you know you don't get anywhere without starting and this is great to see them playing and having a women's team and their, their captain as you said zepeda really classy with the bat bowling with the dark glasses <laughs> as well so good and i know that associate women are probably not going to get much chance to play anything other than T20 cricket unless they're getting into World Cup qualifiers with the pathways that they, they are at the moment. But I've got to say, Zeppeter looked like really good setup to be playing long format cricket and it'd be building a bigger innings in 50 overs and beyond it. Putting her in a team where she's not the, the backbone of the entire batting lineup, I'd love to see her sort of be able to sort of broaden and play a bit more attacking. I think she was having to be quite reserved because the wickets are falling around. But even so, she's still scoring a decent clip and all around the wickets. So I don't know if there's a chance for a bit of crossover and some um, women's franchise cricket across some of the European nations or a, or a European cricket league W but um, there's definitely a bit of talent there including including the Austrian side well just on that uh, the, the venue I thought it was beautiful ground up in the uh, lower Austria you know some lovely rolling farmland and a nice sort of pastoral you know uh, white picket fence and, and yeah very lovely looking place to, to play cricket so I don't know what, what the complaints are about really yeah 
just people with a with a Twitter account want to feel big, I guess. The thing for me is too, and this is going back to all the chat with Mali last year and with Austria here playing against Germany, they're more than aware that they're underdogs in this series. But again, the, the best way to learn and the best way to improve their cricket is to play in matches like this. You're not going to get anywhere without trying to, to beat some of the best other teams in, in your area where, where you're residing. So look, I think full credit to, to Austria for hosting the series. Um, Germany going there and proving to be too strong but again you know we can't have collective improvement unless these games go ahead and yeah if there is any food for thought in regards to to having a regional tournament in front of you know the European Cricket Network and and other people watching if it does benefit the game holistically in that region then I think it's a realistic possibility down the line. Moving stateside and the USA minor league teams have come out with the upcoming draft. Uh, some news as well in regards to some of the ownership. Owners of the Jamaica Talawas and the Barbados Tridents both buying stakes in teams in the United States. Chris Persaud, who owns the Jamaica Talawas, has invested in the Fort Lauderdale Lions with Manish Patel, owning the Austin Athletics. Going through a lot of these teams, guys, we're going to ask you what your favorites are. For more information on the minor league and the 24 teams that are in it, make sure to head to EmergerCreator.com. Nate Hayes has posted a great story about it. We won't go through all the team names for now, but the draft is on. Oh, can we? There are some great ones. (laughs) There are some good ones, but I know how stricken we are for time, gentlemen. We do have Steve, the other half of Steve, I know. but Exactly. Look, it's, it's worth a read. Get on the website. There are some good ones, but gee, there are some shockers, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, you can do both of this at the same time. You can walk and chew, as Peter Delapena would say. And Peter Delapena was the man who broke that story in regards to the multiple owners from the Caribbean Premier League. So shout out to him, huge friend and a patron of the show as well. Uh, yeah, should we go through some of our favourite names here? I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of the Austin Athletics team name for what it's worth. I uh, don't mind the Orlando Galaxy too, actually. Uh, looking at uh, the alliteration around the place with the number of teams is a pretty safe bet. Uh, Nick, I'll start with you. Are you going to be a Morrisville Cardinal fan? I think it's probably among the best names because it's actually relevant to the region. Um, being North Carolina's state bird, but um, I actually quite like the Golden State Grizzlies. You know, it's on the flag, based out of Sacramento. I think that's a pretty good bet. And funny enough, that's the only franchise that is completely owned by Major League Cricket. So I'm not sure if it's a strategic purchase there, considering that they're in that same state. But uh, yeah, but we need to talk about something. The Cricket Management Group LLC have two teams. One of them is the Chicago Catchers. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The other one based out of Miami, is the Florida Beamers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I've got to say that was definitely down on my list in the in the power rankings. But the Beamers, it's like the no like the no balls. Or like, like... Yeah, you can't call a team the Washington Wides, could you? <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'd, I'd be a big fan of the Washington Wides. The Washington Wides. Well, they're changing their football team name too, so they're looking for some inspiration. <laughs> I, I'm taking umbrage with the Golden State Grizzlies only because it seems to be a mashup of the Golden State Warriors and the Memphis Grizzlies basketball team and it's just a marriage in my head that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Look, honestly, the Memphis team being called the Grizzlies is a bizarre and... Uh, also makes no sense. Yeah, geographically um, incomprehensible relic of of, uh, of an expansion move, I think, wasn't it? We did say we weren't going to go through all 24, but I think we basically have. Well, actually, no, sorry, Tim, you've, you've missed out the most important one, the Atlanta Param Veers, which um, is probably the most baffling team name I've come across in basically any sporting context is... Uh, the Edinburgh Rocks? <laughs> well, I mean, at least there are rocks in Edinburgh, you know, 
The 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 Paramvir for for those who aren't aware is India's highest military honor. So why an Atlanta-based cricket team is named after a, a military medal is um. So we should have the uh, Philadelphia Purple Hearts as well. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I mean, at least that's an American military honor. It'd be more like the Philadelphia Victoria Crosses or something. It, it just it's baffling. Well, with their history in cricket and you know, the Philadelphia Gentlemen being the team against. Um, no, no, you're good. A reminder that the minor league cricket draft is to be held on the 22nd. We'll have news on that at emergingcricket.com. Some news this week in Guernsey is hosting the Isle of Man in action from under-13s all the way up to senior level. A contingent of almost 140 from the Isle of Man have made the trip south for a total of 13 matches at the King George V Sports Ground and College Field. The first of three T20s between the senior teams will be an official T20 International with Guernsey streaming the matches on their Facebook page. We'll wrap that action next week on the show. The T20 International Tri-Series between Denmark, Finland and Germany has been cancelled due to COVID concerns. Germany has also cancelled its tour to the Netherlands. For more news, make sure to visit EmergingCricket.com. But for now, part two of our chat with Steve Richardson of the ICC Anti-Corruption Unit. I'm Jared Kimber and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, the John Davison of Associate Cricket Podcasts. You've talked about how you monitor the betting market and other sort of forms of evidence. What is the broad overview process of an investigation into match fixing? You know, because when we see players charged, it's usually after a a long investigation of a year or more or fairly extensive in-depth um, collection of evidence and, and whatnot. So what, what goes into that process um, as opposed to just looking for suspicious betting? Yep. So the suspicious betting is only one part of it. And it, uh, we do have the ability to look into the regulated betting market. So the first thing that we would do on an investigation is get a formal account from the person who is giving the information. And we record that so that we've got a, an un- unassailable record of what has taken place. Um, so we gather that information. We look at that in conjunction with the other physical evidence that might be available from other sources, be it a betting market, be it things that other people are telling us, evidence that we recover from devices, that sort of thing. We look for the links, we look for what else is known, and quite often we find that suspects are working across multiple investigations at any given time. So just before a tournament takes place or a series takes place, you might might have corruptors having multiple attempts to get into players in order to get someone who will eventually say, yes, okay. So we will look at the link and then it becomes a question of actually going and disrupting um, what that person is doing. So we will ask them to come to a meeting. We will formally interview them. If they're inside cricket and under the rules of the anti-corruption code, then clearly we have the ability to take formal action against them. If they're outside cricket, then we will use every legitimate means at our disposal including local law enforcement, to try and disrupt what they're doing. And that will quite often include warning players about who they are, the methods that they're using, how they operate. 
to try and make it as difficult as possible for them to work. So from an investigation perspective, it's, it's a question of working through the evidence, assessing the evidence, gathering as much as possible. And sometimes, yeah, that can take some time. And in fact, obviously with COVID coming to the world over the last um, six, six to eight months, we've it, it's had an impact on us. And obviously it slowed down some of the things that, that we would like to do in, in common with many other people globally. And so, with these investigations that you know, that, that are ongoing, uh, I guess looking at the resources at the disposal of the ACU compared to some of the the fixes out there, how do you try and work in the face of being potentially outmatched sometimes in, in terms of you know who who you're facing up against? Obviously, a, a an organised crime group will probably have more than you know fifteen staff working on on match fixing. Well, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting uh, assessment. Uh, look, there is a vision out there that organized crime is this um, sinister quasi-terrorist group who, that they're all like that and they're, and they're not. Now, as to whether there's 15, three, um, our experience of them is, is that there's actually a fairly small number of people out there who are persistently targeting cricket. And sometimes that a lot of them know each other and they work across their network. Uh, they will work with different people. They'll join up. They'll work independently. So in those terms, it's, it's very much a, a fluid dynamic movement. So it's not necessarily any one big organized crime group. How do we match them? I mean, it's the same problem that any police force has in as much as organized crime is always has the advantage of knowing what their next step is. And the job of the police and law enforcement is to either try and predict that next step or to try and actually intercept it. Now, we can predict what some of our regular corruptors are going to do and we can prevent that by giving players the information they need notifying our anti-corruption managers of the the sorts of patterns and modus operandi that are, are used so for example um a common one is players will be targeted in casinos that's gone on for as many years as you can you care to mention Gamblers will gravitate towards casinos, and if players are in casinos, then they become prey to people who are interested in gambling. And sometimes match fixers are opportunists, and they will take an opportunity. They are not all people whose day job, day in and day out, is fixing matches. There are plenty of those who, that's what they do, be it their organizing leagues so maybe maybe leagues that are um, fictitious and purport to be in one country when in actual fact they're taking place in a different country as we saw recently on the uva league um, that took place in india but purported to be from sri lanka completely fictitious league that was put together purely in order to fix matches and obtain money through through gambling um we got to hear about that pretty quickly because obviously there were websites sites that players were not happy that they were being put up as being involved in that league and they weren't they were nothing at all to do with it so yeah it's about trying to second guess what um, fixers will do it's about trying to be effective when it comes to disrupting them sometimes we're one step behind them sometimes we're ahead of them and what they're doing and we may
manage to disrupt them before anybody actually manages to set foot on a cricket field and do anything that would be corrupt. But very much the way we view it is we're there to protect the players. And if we can prevent something happening or disrupt it, that is far, far preferable to having to take some sort of enforcement action against the player. Just finally on the internal workings of the ACU, you know, this, this, you talked about staying a step ahead, and you know this might be a bit fanciful, but I'm I'm thinking of the movie The, the Departed, where there's you know there's this police officer who investigates a, a crime syndicate, and the crime syndicate plants a mole in the police department. You know, what does the ACU do to watch for you know internal corruption, and how do you try and make sure that that doesn't happen? You know, I'm not necessarily a, a gangster in <laughs> infiltrating the ACU, but just anyone within the ACU being sort of got to? It's, it's a, a very, very fair question. Um, having worked in organized crime for many, many years, it is something that you're always aware of. You hope that it doesn't happen, but you know that it's a possibility. When and if it did happen, there's a surefire way that we will find out that it's happened. And that's because people talk to us. People tell us what is happening. Where people have got what would be termed as someone corrupt inside an an organization, be it the anti-corruption unit or anywhere, they can't help but tell people. And the point about keeping a secret is the only way to keep a secret is be the only one who knows it. Because as soon as you tell one person, they're going to tell some someone else. And I am pretty confident that we would get to hear whispers about anybody who, who was corrupt. And we would deal with that in a robust and appropriate way. Now, you have to guard against malicious complaint. So you have to be very, very careful that some one doesn't just allege something. And uh, as a result of that, somebody gets removed from their position because that's actually a great way to get rid of your most effective people is to make malicious complaints against them. But if there is evidence that someone is corrupt, then yeah, we would we would root it out ruthlessly. The, the point about any conspiracy, any criminal conspiracy, which certainly any match fixing is, or any corrupt um, anti-corruption officer or anybody else would be part of, there is almost always information that a conspiracy like that exists. Almost always. You may not know the detail of what is taking place, but the fact that there is a plot out there or the fact that there is a corrupt anti-corruption official out there, people know it and people will tell you. You know, it's not the sort of thing that stays secret for long is the bottom line. And it doesn't matter whether it's a player that is match fixing or if it's someone who's bent inside the system, you would would eventually get, get to hear about it. Um, you talked about having well the, the the World Cup ten teams ten ACU officers connected to the event one for each team. The ACU's auspices include all international cricket. Now there's a lot of international cricket going on more than ever now with the advent of T20 international status amongst all associates as well. How is the ACU keeping up with all of that cricket going on? And assuming you can't be on the ground for for all of those matches, what is ACU in the emerging cricket world look like at the moment? No, you're right. We can't be at all the all the matches. Um, now that everybody can play T20 internationals, everybody is governed by the ICC anti-corruption code. So everybody who plays an international match anywhere is governed by that that code. So we are working with our colleagues in development in the ICC regions, and we are building their capacity in order to protect the players in the regions. 
What does that look like? Well, we are in the final stages of developing a, a short education video around 10 minutes or so long that can be shown to the players and people within the game in order to explain to them what the risks are, explain to them what their responsibilities are and to educate them. We are giving, uh, we're developing a platform for the associates where there will be resources on that platform, key messages, posters that they can put up in dressing rooms, key information that they need to know in order to protect their participant and their players. The higher risk event, we will put somebody at to protect those events and we will make sure that it has a higher level of support directly from our staff. But there are, you know, what we're seeing is we're seeing a burgeoning of not only associate cricket, but tournaments that are aimed at that lower level of cricket. And some of those are private tournaments. Some of those are National Cricket Federation sanctioned tournaments, sanctioned by the, the local board. But whoever is putting on that cricket, it's absolutely incumbent on them to make sure that they have the strategies in place and the tactical options in place to protect their players. It's not just about educating the players. It's about having people on the ground, having people available. This is the role of our anti-corruption managers in sort of the, the matches that they attend. Having somebody there, yes, it acts as a deterrent, but more importantly, it means that someone can come up to you in a quiet moment and say, look, I think this is happening in that match, or I've heard so-and-so saying this. Um, that is the way that you protect your game. You've got to be as much as you possible on the ground. Now, in the associate world, we'll actually, um, somebody will have responsibility for that anti-corruption. It could be that it's uh, an ICC member of staff, be it somebody from the development unit, be it uh, a match referee. And of course, they've got direct contact and access to us. So we would ensure that we're all always available to them. But it is definitely incumbent on the people who are organizing tournaments and events to make sure that they've got um, the right protection in place for their event. And if they don't, they, they are putting their event at risk. Just on the point of education, and you, you mentioned the, the video to try and you know, explain what's expected of players and, and, and what to do, um, what is the ACU's approach to countries that maybe their English isn't great? Um, because we know with Thailand, they had some English, but they did struggle a bit with things like press conferences. So what, what does the ACU do to try and bridge that gap? Well, we're very fortunate when it comes to the different languages that we, we can call on because we have anti-corruption managers who are from different countries around the world. We can use their language skills when it comes to delivering education. But if you take the example of the last World Cup, we had a, uh, a bespoke video for the World Cup, and that was in six different languages that we actually delivered that, be it someone delivering it in the language live or subtitles on the video. So we've also developed um, an app, which the ICC Integrity app, which players and people within the game can use to report. And that's growing in terms of the amount of use that it has. And the next phase of that for us is to actually get that app in different languages so that um, people who speak different languages globally, different languages from English, are able to access that app and make make reports to it. So yeah, we're very aware that um, we can't just go around the world delivering everything in English. 
we need to meet the needs of different languages, different communities to make the education effective for them as well. So just looking at all these, uh, you know, the T20s that are popping up around the world, um, what are the standards, uh, what boxes, I guess, does a member organisation have to tick in order to hold an official T20I or or indeed a domestic league in terms of anti-corruption procedures? And I guess, how does the ACU make sure that they're all being enforced properly? Well, uh, uh, there are T20 international minimum standards. There's a, a whole manual that makes requirements of a board when they're putting on a T20 international. And part of that is the anti-corruption and includes putting a players and match officials um, zone in, making sure that that is enforced. And for example, phones are removed from the players during the course of, of the match. Um, there, there will be somebody locally who actually has responsibility for ensuring that those standards are met. We try to give as much support as we can to all of the associates. A lot of what takes place is in terms of the different series and the different leagues that take place globally, um, they're ICC standards and that includes the anti-corruption. So we do get reports from those. We try to get to as many as we can, but you're right, Nick, that we can't possibly cover them all. So we try to ensure that the minimum standards are met every associate member has to have an anti-corruption code in place for their domestic events. And of course, for a T20 international, we've got the International Cricket Council anti-corruption code. So how has that changed recently? We've seen a number of pop-up tournaments and Nick talked about T20, but we're also seeing T10 now with events trying to fit in as much cricket as possible. And for the first time ever, we've seen gambling sponsorship of, a, of associate events as, as well. I, did that sort of raise any eyebrows in, in the ACU team when you saw these events pop up post-COVID? And do you look at these any differently when they're supported by by gambling companies? I, it is a really intriguing question that we get asked by a lot of people online and, and also feedback about the, the podcast. So I'd, I'm really interested to get your viewpoint. Yeah, so gambling, it's really important. So gambling itself is not corruption. So the fact that somebody gambles, the fact that there is a gambling sponsor does not mean that an event is corrupt. And gambling is looked at in different ways all around the world. So if you take the UK, gambling is a lawful and legitimate pastime. Plenty of people take part in it. Now, there are some people who will question its morality, but there are many, many who enjoy gambling as a pastime. If you take the subcontinent, gambling is viewed very, very differently. It's legal. There are many people who view it as a moral issue, as morally wrong, and we completely respect that. Uh, if a national cricket federation decide to have their event sponsored by a gambling company, provided there is nothing illegal within their country and there is nothing within their constitution that stops them from doing that, then that is fine. The ICC themselves will not have gambling companies as sponsors, but gambling itself, as I say, is not something that that is illegal. Now, there are many people who make a living from gambling on cricket and other sporting events. And actually, in order to uh, read the game, it needs to be clean because if they are anticipating that a match will go in a particular way and they are putting money on that as an event, If somebody has fixed it and it goes the other way, they're going to lose. So for a professional cricket gambler, trader, to actually ply their trade and make money, the game needs to be clean. So in part, in a country where gambling is legal, 
In part, it's a bit of a moral question. Um, where it's not, it's unlikely to happen. Now, when somebody is bringing a gambling company as a sponsor to a country, what they have to look at is the, um, the rationale for that the reason that they're doing doing it, what's the motivation behind them them doing that. Uh, so it's always important to do your due diligence on not only the gambling company, but also on the people who are bringing the gambling company to you, the people who are offering to run the event. Uh, because sometimes if something appears too good to be true, it's probably because it is. So it brings risk, but the, they are risks that can be mitigated provided people don't just see the dollar signs and they're willing to do robust due diligence. Now, just on this, the subject of betting um, and, and a bit more specifically with the European Cricket Network series that uh, you know we've seen some reports of corruption come out of that recently. Um, Daniel Weston mentioned that those reports were tipped off basically by a, a sort of automated data analytics tracking monitoring the betting market. Can you talk a bit more about how that works just as a process in terms of you know, what is the algorithm looking for in terms of suspicious activity? Well, I'm, I won't make any comment on the European Cricket Network or what protection measures Daniel Weston has got for his event and his tournament. Um, the algorithm will plot a line depending on what is happening in a match. And from that, it will plot what the expected uh, betting odds should be. If the betting odds move in a different direction to the line that the algorithm expects, it will trigger an alert. Now, um, our experience is that in cricket, because so much of the gambling takes place on the unregulated subcontinent markets that um, has limited success. Very effective in football and other sports, but um, in our experience, cricket is a strange beast with the illegal betting markets on the subcontinent. So that's how an algorithm would work. But as to whether it's the most effective way of detecting corruption in cricket, that's, that's something that's still open to question. And so I guess with this, um, you know, you're looking at the data, does the ACU use data from, say, private companies like CrickViz or do you keep your own analytics on, on, you know, how a match should be expected to go? No, it's a, it's a highly specialised um, world in terms of data and analytics and how that would in- impact a match. There are specialist companies out there who run these algorithms so many people are familiar with the work of sport radar as being one such company uh, we don't do that in-house it's something that if we feel the need for that sort of expertise then we can go in and buy it in i almost liken it to dna when i was running a, a murder team i didn't have my own in-house dna expert to um, go and collect samples and then analyze them we had expertise external expertise that we bought in and that we we relied on when it comes to betting expertise we're very much in the same same area if we need it we will buy it in covered full members and we talked about the World Cup and associate cricket and how much more cricket is being played there whether it's international or domestic leagues but we're also seeing leagues pop up hastily organized or maybe um, with a little bit more forethought in non-members you know we saw a comical highlights of, of a competition in, in a, an emirate in the UAE and I know the UAE you're a member but it was a, a non-sanctioned league but we're also seeing cricket come up in Tajikistan as amongst other countries that are not ICC members how does the ACU approach approach the game when it falls outside of those that come under the anti-corruption code? 
Well, when it's outside our, our code, it's not something that we have responsibility for, but it's actually something that we will take a great interest in. The, the tournament that you're talking about is the uh, Ajman All-Stars that took place in 2018. And there's a, another tournament that was set up purely with one thing in mind, which was fixing. The umpires were telling the players what they should do, when they should get out, hence some of the uh, comedy moments that took place um, within that tournament tournament um, it was set up purely for fixing reasons now we did investigate that we did look at it it had links to people who uh, have come up in subsequent investigation so even though it's outside our jurisdiction by getting involved talking to people who were involved in that the setting up of that league and understanding how it was set up because it was televised by companies in India who were in effect tricked into televising it. That's that's what happened. It's the same as with the UVA league that took place recently. Um, and it's part of the reason that we assess that match fixes are more akin to fraudsters rather than they are sort of dangerous contract killers and that sort of thing. They, they Their methods of working are very much more aligned to scamming people, defrauding people, tricking people. Um, that is their, their method of work. And certainly that's what was taking place in the Ajman All-Stars, because when that is taking place, there are betting markets, even if they're not in the regulated markets, there are betting markets in India that people are putting money on, believing that that is a, a genuine tournament. And of course, it's, it's not. So in effect, they are being defrauded. And what about in countries that aren't ICC members at the moment? I may have sort of conflated that question when I came about the Ajman All-Stars, which, again, I think has got to be some of the most, well, I guess comedy is the only word. I mean, if you're not laughing, you'll be crying looking at it with the, uh, the deliberate run-outs or coming back for a second run because the fielder fumbled it when you're trying to get run out in the first one. It was uh, beyond crazy. But uh, for a country like Tajikistan that isn't a member yet and has dreams of becoming a member but hosting an event. They can't sanction it. I know there was actual talk of cooperation between the Tajiks and and Afghanistan Cricket Board. And maybe the the second part of my question is, could another member help out by sanctioning that league and um, in the likes of an ACB? But how how are you viewing these events that are popping up in, in countries that aren't ICC members yet? Well, any any event that is not sanctioned cricket, we would consider a risk. So there was an event that took place in Nepal, the Asian Premier League, that was not a sanctioned event. And and a, t- a tournament is only sanctioned by the ITC if it has four internationals playing in it who are from outside the federation um, that, whose jurisdiction it's taking place in. So if a tournament is taking place in, for example, the UAE, and they're going to have four players, international players, who aren't from the UAE, the ICC would would have to sanction that. Otherwise, the local board can sanction it. If it's not sanctioned cricket, then players are not allowed to play in it. And there are sanctions for them if they do. So there was a, a Hong Kong player who was sanctioned for playing in the Asian Premier League because he went and played without a no objection certificate. He's a professional player and he got banned for playing in unsanctioned cricket. Now, if, if an event's taking place and we get information that there is corruption that is taking place, we can still use local law enforcement to try and intervene. We'll use every means at our disposal to try and do that because the likelihood is it's going to be the same familiar suspects who are involved because there's, as I 
said earlier, there's a fairly small cadre of people who go around putting these events on. It's not that big a network who go and do this. So, yeah, we disrupt it in any way that we can. Now, one of the most famous, I guess, cases of uh, alleged corruption has was documented uh, by Al Jazeera a, a couple of years ago in, in that famous documentary. We saw a lot of, you know, explosive allegations and sort of sensational claims. Uh, where is the ACU up to in their investigation? Obviously, you can't answer anything specifically, but, you know, is there a, an ongoing investigation or is there a time frame or what's, what's the situation? Yeah, it's still an ongoing investigation. I hope that in the not too distant future, we we will be in a position to give our, our view on it. But probably it's best I don't say any more than that at this stage because it is an ongoing investigation. Steve, I've... Uh despite unfortunately having been involved in uh, in anti-corruption investigation during my time in Hong Kong, I've, I've learned a lot. We really appreciate your time. But one thing we do throw all of our interviewees at the end of our questions is, is probably the most important question of, of the whole interview is uh, about this wonderful game of ours. Now, if you could change one of the laws of cricket, what would it be and why? Blimey. You... Uh... This is the toughest question in the interview. <laughs> that is the toughest. Yeah, in a murder squad, um, organised crime, but cricket laws. <laughs> well, I suppose if there was one thing I would change, it would actually be something within our own area of working. And what I would like to see would be one anti-corruption code globally, as opposed to lots of different anti-corruption codes that have different jurisdictions, because I, I think that's confusing for players. And that's something that will be a work in progress and that hopefully we'll be able to work towards. Um, if I was going to change one, it would probably be I would sort out the law that ends up resulting in mancads because every time, every time there's a mancad, it seems to generate hours of endless fun on Twitter, depending on what side you're on as to whether it's uh, Josh Butler being um, mancadded twice. It's... Um, yeah, so probably get that mancad sorted out. Maybe maybe batsmen could stay in their crease, and maybe bowlers could make sure they get through their action before they uh, before they try and mancad people. <laughs> Well, normally when people answer that on the podcast, answering that question, they say that should just be open and it should be encouraged. So I guess you're not saying you wouldn't want that. But as the, the most active and probably the only ACU officer out there on social media, you probably want it for your sanity as well. You probably get all the messages from everyone accusing all these players of fixing and cheating. So, okay. So basically, it's, an, it's another one in the, the, the mancad come run out at the non-striker's end column, which is, is definitely leading at the moment. It's a very popular one. I, d- I didn't realise that other people had mentioned that actually. So it's. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, you, a lot of people talk about the uh, spirit of cricket and that it should, you know, it shouldn't exist. You know, it's a game and people should be trying to win and that the run out of the bowler's end is completely legitimate because a bowler is trying to steal space to get a run and so therefore a bowler should be able to to take his wicket. And the, the debate is what would that dismissal be called? People have said, well, maybe it should be stumped by the bowler or all these other things. But uh, yeah. no, it's always an interesting one where you kind of just move outside of our box a little bit and start thinking about it. Another good one is double plays i think that's one that uh, excites some people especially uh yeah everyone loves double plays yeah the you know you'd have to change the dead ball or but uh 
Look, Steve, uh, thank you very much for your time. I, you know, I, I hope you're not busy. I hope you're sitting there with nothing, no reports coming in. There's, there's nothing happening. But um, I know your time is very valuable and uh, we really appreciate you taking it out to speak to us. No, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks again to Steve Richardson for joining us over the last two programs. And thank you to all of you tuning in. On behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.